Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The chair will put Mr. Speaker. Mr. Speaker. The bill is passed. We've created a commitment to America. Those in favor say aye. Hi, and welcome to Control. Control is a new podcast looking down the road at the issues and the conflicts that will define the new Congress in 2023. I'm Annalise Keller. And I'm Brendan Buck, and we're your hosts. Uh, in a little less than a week, we'll have an election, followed by a new Congress and potentially a new balance of power in Washington, D.C. And this is a podcast about power and how it's used. It's a podcast about not just control of Congress, but keeping control of an agenda. Uh, we want this to be a forward-looking podcast. We can't predict the future, of course, but we can use our shared experience to look around the corner, help listeners understand the friction points and the power dynamics and the policy issues that are likely to determine how this Congress operates uh, and what can get done. And we'll also be bringing on subject matter experts, political operatives, reporters, and former lawmakers who know this institution better than just about anyone else and can help us explain what's coming next. So thank you for joining us here on our Maiden episode. Uh, we're excited about this. Before we dive in, bring on our distinguished guest for the first episode and talk about some issues. We thought it might make sense to talk a little bit about us so you know uh, who we are and where we come from. Annalise and I both work at Seven Letter, a communications firm here in Washington. Control, of course, is a seven-letter word. But most relevant to our conversation here, we both served in roles on Capitol Hill. Uh, I worked for the last two Republican speakers of the House, most recently as the top communications advisor to Paul Ryan, and before that, press secretary for John Boehner. I started my career in the House for former Congressman Tom Price, spent some time at the Ways and Means Committee, the most powerful committee in Congress, uh, and even spent some time working for someone who no doubt will be a central character in our story, Kevin McCarthy. So I'm a House guy, largely a leadership guy. I'll be trying to bring that perspective to our show. I am a Congress geek. I love Congress. I love all of the, the messiness that takes place there. So I'm excited to talk about it uh, and try to provide some perspective on what it takes to keep things on the rails in Congress. And I'm Annalise Keller. And before joining Seven Letter, I advise members in the House and the Senate, most recently serving as Senator Cory Gardner's communications director, a member of former Senate leadership. A large part of my time was spent uh, on congressional campaigns and statewide races for members of Congress from across the Republican political spectrum. Annalise will be our political campaign hat person, as well as, she doesn't like to say this, but our, our Freedom Caucus expert, having uh, worked for a founding member of, of the Freedom Caucus. Uh, but we're excited to have a special guest for our first episode. Uh, actually, the last speaker of the House, my old boss, Paul Ryan, will join us a little later. But before we do that, we're going to talk a little bit about potential Speaker McCarthy, uh, some of the policy issues facing the next Congress, what might get done, um, and I think we're going to dive into some congressional oversight topics. So with the news this week that House Republicans are planning to hold leadership elections the week after Election Day, let's start with a conversation about what we can expect with House Republican majority. Um, I think we we all kind of understand why Kevin McCarthy wants to, you know, capitalize on the momentum of hopefully a good election night and kind of dive right into leadership election, not give anybody any time to really do any backroom deals or horse trading. Um, and Brennan, I think, you know, I'm curious your thoughts on uh, as a former McCarthy staffer, uh, you know, what do you think about a Speaker McCarthy? Yeah. And, and to be clear, 
we don't know that Republicans are going to take back the House. We're just looking at all the polls like everybody else and kind of just assuming they are. So that will be, uh, a, a, you know, that's the first hurdle, right, taking back the House. But assuming they do, um, I think Kevin is in a very good position to become the next speaker. And I actually think that he is a bit underestimated. Uh, there's this narrative surrounding him that, uh, you know, he is always been the sidekick and maybe not somebody who's up to the job of, of being speaker. But I think that generally misunderstands what the role of speaker is. And uh, you have to appreciate where he's gotten to at, at this point. He has consolidated power within the conference. He's in very good standing with the conference. Um, he plays the inside game as well as anybody. But being speaker is not a... It's a bit of a policy position. You have to have a little bit of a policy agenda. You have to have a little bit of an agenda. But being speaker is largely a problem-solving job. It is largely a member management job. You spend all day long trying to solve problems that are going on in the conference, and it's usually just interpersonal conflict. And he's great at that. And I think that he will be in a really good position to keep the peace much longer than people think he is. Like, there's certainly going to be, be challenges that he faces. But the issue ultimately is how do you get 218 people to get along and do something? And nobody knows the members better. Nobody understands what makes them tick better. Nobody understands giving them what they need to feel happy and fed and be able to communicate back home better than he does. So I think he's actually going to be a somewhat effective speaker, certainly much more than people are, are giving him credit for. Okay, so McCarthy is a really nice guy. Everybody likes him. He's everybody's friend. Um, but I think the reality is that, you know, people don't trust leadership when it comes down to it, when it comes down to actually governing in the majority. It's Fair very enough. different, you know, when you're in the minority. But, um, you know, we're still going to have the Freedom Caucus. We're still going to have the Matt Gates of the world. Uh, we're still going to have this inevitability of Republicans governing and being forced to pass bipartisan legislation. Um, so, you know, these, and also, I mean, frankly, another, you know, looming, looming large in, the, in this whole conversation is, is Trump and in our 2024, you know, presidential. Certainly. What's, there's, there's going to be a lot of challenges in front of him, but has anybody in congressional leadership done a better job of keeping Donald Trump happy? I would argue no. Certainly look at Mitch McConnell and the relationship that he's had. And obviously McCarthy has had his his ups and ups and his downs. And yeah, look, um, if, if there are some people on the far right who want to give McCarthy trouble, there will be plenty of opportunities to do that. Um, they're going to have to do some bipartisan bills at some point. They're going to have to fund the government. They're going to have to do a debt limit increase. There's going to be a lot of fights over that. But, I mean, you know, like if, you, if a member of Congress is able to get some wins along the way, if leadership is able to say, hey, yeah, you don't like what we're doing over here, but I got you this vote that you've been asking for for a long time, that makes them feel a lot better. I don't know. Why do, why do, make, why do members not trust leadership? I mean, that's a, a constant thing that we always dealt with is they always assume that we're up to no good or something. And that's usually not the case, I, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I th I think you hit it on the on the nail when you said you know there need to be concession for these for these members who are going back to their districts and saying you know here's what you know matters to me in my state and I'm not getting that done for you. So I think it's a balancing act, and I think there will be a lot of opportunities, and it's going to be it, it is a different um, you know different landscape. I think your former boss Paul Ryan 
former speaker, you know, did a really good job of, you know, giving some of these folks gavels and positions of power that where they were able to kind of, you know, have to grapple with, all right, I've got to get something done for this committee and I've got to get something done for my constituency. And, and how does that look in reality? Well, maybe we did an OK job, but certainly that's where I think McCarthy has really changed the landscape of the House is he has empowered people like Jim Jordan, given him the top spot on uh, the Judiciary Committee, he's made alliances with some of the most, I don't even like to say conservative, but sort of um, the, the most people most likely to cause trouble uh, in the conference. He's tried to make real inroads with them, and he doesn't have a whole lot of enemies at this point. Maybe there's a handful, and I guess we got to see what the new members are like, but um, I, I think he comes into this as, as strong as you can you can hope for, assuming that there is a, a, a decent, decent night. But let me ask you a question. Assuming there is a decent night for Republicans, assuming they do take back the House, um, should they interpret that as a mandate to pursue conservative Republican policy, or should they interpret that more as a mandate to be a check on Democrats and stop spending and, and, and serve as a, a counterbalance to the Biden administration? A check on Democrats, 100%. Another question. Do you think Republicans will actually see it that way? Uh, I don't. I, I don't actually think that they'll see it that way. Uh, I 100% agree. It feels to me like every new majority comes in and thinks that the election was about them. And you're the campaign person, but you tell me most elections are about the people who are in power and why people don't like them, not necessarily voting in somebody. Um and I don't know, we just tend to make a lot of mistakes when we do that. Uh, Democrats, I would argue, uh, made the same mistake the last few years. Uh, Joe Biden, I believe, was uh, elected in large part as uh, a swing back away from Donald Trump, pursued a bunch of policies that people perhaps didn't like. Certainly when Republicans were last in charge of Congress, we did we, we took our new power as a mandate to... Um, pursue everything we always wanted to do. And we did a bunch of things that were largely unpopular, uh, including repeal and replace Obamacare. I think we voted like 10 times to repeal and replace Obamacare. And ultimately it, it, it cost us. So I don't know if, if, as you're looking at this situation, what is the risk for Republicans to be overreaching, to misinterpret the mandate? I understand why they say they have a mandate to do what they want to do, but I also question whether that's actually good long-term politics. I mean, I think there's always the risk of an overcorrection when a new majority comes in. I think in this case, you know, you will still have divided governments, divided government with a Biden administration. So I think largely these votes are going to be messaging votes um, that, you know, these lawmakers can talk about, but are not going to have any real implications for Americans. So I think the risk in this case might be a little bit lower of, um, you know, them, the, the overcorrection uh, in practice. And they've talked a little bit about understanding, at least some of them, knowing that this stuff isn't going to become law. But your constituents that you've promised these things to might not right. appreciate that as much. Right. I mean, you've got to deliver. You've got to deliver on, on, the, um, on the highlights. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about what happens next. So we've got leadership elections. We've got new committee chair chairmen coming in. Um, we've got new staff directors, new DIM leadership. Um, I think one leadership race that everybody around here is talking a lot about is 
the whip race. I think that's, you know, the, the main, the only contested race that we're looking at. So there's lots of gossip around that one. And I, I think we'll probably talk a little bit more about that after the election when we have a little bit of a clearer picture of, of uh, what we're, what's going on. Why in God's name anyone would want to be the Republican whip, I, I don't know. But yes, that will be a very interesting race that we'll keep an eye on. And of course, uh, what Democratic leadership potentially looks like next Congress, I think will be really interesting. So we'll we'll talk about that next next week. Um, but let's talk a little bit about policy right now. And we, we, we talked about it a little bit. Ultimately, this podcast, I think, is going to try to be about what Congress does and not just the politics and horse race stuff. Um, I do think it's important to appreciate that if Republicans take back the House, this is effectively the end of the Biden legislative agenda. Um, and I don't think this has gotten enough attention. Peter Baker in the New York Times uh, had a, a great story this week uh, about all the things that Democrats still would like to do um, and how that's likely over. And it's, it's a pretty grim reality if you're if you're Democrats. And we saw it. You know, the I was in the speaker's office almost the entire Obama administration. And look, they were really productive in their first two years. But the last six years was pretty, uh, pretty slim pickings uh, if you're if you're a Democrat in terms of. Uh, legislative things that that you can get done. So I just think that's an important thing to appreciate, that um, if you're a Democrat, this may be the end of the line for the Biden administration in terms of of getting things done, at least for the next two years if Republicans win. Yeah, so, I mean, Republicans earlier this year have kind of unveiled what they're hoping to focus on. Um, I think a lot of people were really anxious to see their policy plan and proposals. They came out with their commitment to America. Um, I think it was you know, pretty thin on on details, but that kind of allowed them to have a, a wide breadth of Republicans um, coalescing around, you know, their... Very little to object to, basically. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so, I mean, you know, it wasn't terribly ambitious. The question is, do they need to go bigger? So I, it felt like it, it was everybody around town was eagerly awaiting this Republican agenda. What are they going to do? What's going to be in it? And I think people are still asking, what's, what are they going to do? What's going to be in it? I mean, it was a lot of broad topics. But I guess from a member's perspective, is it okay to not have a very ambitious agenda? I mean, you've been promising all these things on the campaign trail. Do you have to go a little bigger than what we saw in that document? I think, I think what Americans need coming from these elections are going to be actual, um, you know, economic Im- improvement, right? I mean, I don't know exactly how they're going to be able to get at that. I think they've talked about, you know, addressing Social Security, Medicare, some, you know, entitlement reform. I don't know how likely that oh, is. Boy. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there are a few ways they're going to try to tackle that issue, but I think that is uh, the overarching challenge that members are going to need to come back to their their districts and states and say, you know, actually your grocery bills going down, right? Your gas bills going down. I mean, I think some of these very specific policy topics that we're going to be talking about and diving into in the messaging bills, like while they're very important and they matter here, um, I think it's a lot harder to talk about, you know, HR, you know, 336, whatever, whatever it might be when you know, the voters are really not feeling like anything's changed in Washington. And that's something we talked about with Paul Ryan is setting expectations about what you can actually get done, what people's expectations are. Um, And I think we want to talk through a few of these policy issues in general. But I think question for us, does it matter what House Republicans do for the next two years legislatively if we're still in divided government, if 
Biden's not going to sign any of this, if none of this is going to have. So even if even if Republicans control the Senate, does it matter what their agenda is? Yeah, I think it I think it does matter. And in the same way that I was just, you know, talking about with the economic recovery. I mean, I think if there's if they have nothing to say that they've gotten done and the economy continues to get worse, I think it's really hard for a 2024 uh, you know, presidential election to go well. I also think it matters not because it's going to make law now, but it's a bit of a long game. I mean, the legislative process doesn't necessarily just last one Congress. And if there's something you're pushing or something that you're against, and even if it doesn't go anywhere but passes the House, that doesn't mean that, you know, it couldn't happen two years from now or four years from now. Republicans all of a sudden get the White House. And these things that we dismiss as unimportant all of a sudden are teed up to become law because the committee has been working on it. The policy is still sitting there on the shelf. They basically declared that this is something they're they're going to fight for. So I just caution people against dismissing what happens in the House as, as meaningless because I think it ultimately could come back and be much more real in, in a very short amount of time. Yeah, I think we see that all the time with frameworks of legislation kind of being pushed together, parts and pieces of different bills coming together that they've been working on for years and years. Well, let's talk about some of those things. Um, I want to play a little game. I want to talk through a few issues that I think are likely to come up. They've said they're going to come up. Um, And let's categorize them. Are these the types of things where they're just going to be doing a messaging vote to put some points on the board and make Republican voters feel good back home? Something they're actually going to fight for? Or is it something that there's actually a chance for some bipartisanship and we might actually be making law? So you ready? Let's let's start. Ready. Um, immigration, obviously an important topic for Republicans. Where do you see any action on that? I think this is going to be a messaging vote. No opportunity to do anything. I think that's reasonable. Um, but let's remember, uh, this is also what we shut down the government over in 2018, fighting for um, so it wouldn't surprise me if they do actually try to stick something on a appropriations bill to try to get some money for the border. Obviously, this is a crisis. I think they could actually put Democrats in a relatively tough spot uh, because it's such an acute crisis in so many places. I, I certainly agree there will be some messaging votes. I also think it wouldn't surprise me if they sort of go to the mat on this one a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, I don't see any broad bipartisan immigration reform, but I certainly could see some, you know, funding and, and uh, ongoing conversations. Okay. Energy policy. I think that's an opportunity. Really? I, okay. I do. I think there's some opportunity for, um, you know, there's certainly still an appetite in the Senate for some permitting reform. I think there are some um, things that can be done uh, along the edges, you know, may, may not be as sweeping as some people want. People, you know, are not going to be getting everything that they want. But I think the gas prices are something right now that, um, you know, I don't think they're going to restore Keystone or anything, you know, like that. Um, but but I think that's something that there's some opportunity for. Okay. I actually think this is probably going to end up being more of a messaging exercise. Uh, the the permitting form reform is is a good call out. I think that is something that is very possible. But otherwise, I think Republicans very much enjoy having this issue, and they know that legislatively their ability to impact gas prices is, is pretty limited. This ultimately comes down to the administration and, and what they do, and of course global markets. So I think they're just going to pass a ton of messaging bills on on energy. But we'll see. Uh, crime. 
this is, I don't really know how Congress solves the crime problem in this country, but I, I wonder how they, you think they approach this. I think it's probably more of a messaging vote. I think, you know, there's certainly things that they can do tying that to immigration with challenges of, you know, border issues. Uh, I think this is just something that we're, we're going to hear a lot about. Um, but to your point, you know, there's there's a lot more that can be done at the state level on these issues. Yeah, so. I just don't see Republicans spending a lot of federal money on this, but maybe politics of this have just overcome every, you know, his, historical approaches to this. We'll see. Uh, Ukraine. There's been a lot of chatter of late about how Republicans are going to approach Ukraine funding. McCarthy has signaled that uh, there may not be the open checkbook that there has been for the last year. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's going to be a tough one. I mean, I think I think there are going to be people on both sides that are going to be willing to fight for this one. Yeah, I, I feel like this was a little more... Um, a little more hubbub than was necessary. I, I think there is still a bipartisan consensus that we need to support Ukraine. And I think Kevin was just, Kevin McCarthy was just giving uh, a little voice to some people in his conference who are, are getting a little tired of it. But I actually don't think this is going to have as much drama as people are making it out to be. Um, okay, two, two more quick ones. Uh, uh, crypto. This is on everybody's mind around Washington. Uh, is this something where they're actually going to do something? I think maybe I think they could. I could see a little. So I, I don't think it's going to be broad and sweeping, but I think there's there's enough different voices in you know the House and Senate to have a conversation about this. The thing that crypto has going for it is you have relatively serious members um, with the uh, jurisdiction over this. Patrick McHenry at the Financial Services Committee is a very serious, thoughtful member. Uh, I think that provides uh, a big opportunity potentially. I don't know what that is. Um, this is a completely unregulated space at this point, but I, I think the crypto issue is going to be with us for a couple more years. For, I think for that's sure. right. Um, one issue we can't pass over, and you you talked a little bit about this. This election has been about inflation. Republicans have framed it as an issue of too much spending. Um, what do you think they're willing to do about that? Um, you said Medicare and Social Security. I will go on the record and say there's zero chance Republicans are going to pass any t meaningful entitlement reform or even try. Mitch McConnell would never allow that. Um, but you, you know, that if you're not touching, touching entitlements, that leaves basically your standard appropriations bills. Do you think that we are going to see a dramatic curtailing of appropriations in the House that leads to some type of shutdown fight? I don't think so. Um, Brennan, I know you've been through that and maybe you feel differently that that's a, a likely possibility. But um, yeah, I, I just I, I don't think that that's what what we need to be what Republicans are going to feel like they need to come in and shut down the government right away. Yeah, it's it's just really their only option. I, I, I mean, not a shutdown, but like the appropriations, I think, are the only real option they have. Um, and that could get ugly really fast. I just this was what the election is about. So I don't think they can just completely ignore this. So I, I think the which can be sometimes boring and people's eyes uh, gloss over when you talk about appropriations. Um, but keep an eye on that. And I think that's where a lot of the policymaking is going to happen. People are you know, there's not a lot of uh, vehicles to get things done. So things will be added to appropriations. And I also think the levels of appropriations are going to be a big, big fight. And so we need to keep uh, keep an eye on that. Um, but of course, it's not just policy. There's also the issue of oversight, which I think is going to define this Congress as much as, as anything. So um, we don't, we're not going to go through all of the, the things that they are potentially going to 
do oversight on. We'll, we'll take through them a little bit. We are going to uh, devote an episode soon entirely to the oversight agenda and, and bring on a, an expert who understands how this how this stuff works. But um, just briefly, I mean, taking through some of these things that are, I think, going to define um, the oversight agenda for this Congress. Uh, immigration, we've talked about, is, is huge for Republican voters, so it's hard to see them not doing that. And even some pretty aggressive action in terms of like impeachment related to immigration or have come up. Uh, we know Hunter Biden is going to be uh, somehow part of the focus. Um, energy policy and per- permitting. Uh, COVID, I don't know. Do people still care about the COVID issue in terms of oversight? Do they care to look back at that? I think there's still some members, you know, maybe around uh, the origination of COVID. I could see some, you know, investigations into kind of how, you know, how it played out, how we got here. But I think broadly speaking, no, I think people are ready to move on from COVID. You know, it's, it's time to move on. I'm, I'm sure they'll want to bring Dr. Fauci up at least one more time, but I, I agree that seems a little stale at this point. Um, we know they're going to go after, quote unquote, big tech, Elon Musk, all that fun stuff. China. Um, they've even said there's going to be like a select committee on China. I think abortion is probably going to come up as an oversight issue more than a, a legislative one. Uh, of course, the issue of election integrity, um, and then Afghanistan has been one that that they that they focus on. Um, to what ends, though? Obviously, uh, oversight. People are trying to rush ahead to one conclusion, and that's impeachment. I know you've been been thinking about this, Annalise. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I know McCarthy has, you know, recently put some cold water on these conversations around impeachment, but I think there is going to be a ratcheting uh, of pressure in the Republican conference to pursue an impeachment uh, on Biden on Biden, and I think those are those calls are going to continue to grow. Um, and I think I think it's really to the detriment of the conference and for the American people. Um, you know, I just think. It's, it's hard for me to imagine Republicans coming in with all of this momentum, wanting to address these real problems that they've campaigned on for crime, uh, you know, inflation, and all of these other challenges facing Americans, and immediately shift to, okay, we're going to go impeach Biden. I mean, that just seems... It certainly seems like a way to give Biden his mojo back, make him the victim, and make it look like Republicans overreaching. The only wrinkle I'll just sort of throw out there to consider is... We don't know who's going to control the Senate, but if Republicans control the House, um, I think who controls the Senate is going to have a big impact on how much impeachment becomes part of the playbook. Uh, And that's because when impeachment resolutions pass, articles of impeachment pass the House, they go immediately over to the Senate, and they basically shut down that chamber until it's disposed of. And that is not a quick process, and it can take weeks. My sense is if Republicans control the Senate, Mitch McConnell is not going to appreciate having to deal with random impeachment resolutions uh, every couple months. Uh, the Senate time, the floor on the time, time on the floor is very valuable uh, in the Senate, and I think he will not appreciate that. Now, if it's Chuck Schumer's Senate still, I don't think Mitch McConnell will care quite as much. It might actually be encouraging uh, the House to be sending over impeachment resolutions to, to gum things up so they can't pass more judges and things like that. So I think that's an interesting thing 
to to keep an eye on. So we covered a lot. I think we'll leave it there for now. We have a lot more to discuss uh, as we go forward, uh, and we'll have a lot of uh, guests who will be able to take us a little deeper into some of these issues that we that we've already talked about. But right now, I think we're going to kick it over to our guest for our first episode. We had a fun talk with Paul Ryan yesterday. You'll have to suffer with him as he talks a little bit about the Packers, but then we get into why he thinks Kevin McCarthy can be an effective speaker, his expectations for the House, and his reaction to the terrible attack on Paul Pelosi. We're now pleased to welcome former Speaker Paul Ryan, uh, also Brendan's former boss. Uh, Mr. Speaker, thank you so much for joining us. Great to see you, Annalise. Thanks for having me. Buck, always good to see you. Hey, Paul. Uh, thank you for being here. Good to talk with you. Um, first, I want to give you a chance to explain yourself with how bad the Packers are doing this year, if you'd like to take the opportunity. Why don't you just give me a paper cut and pour lemon juice in it while you're at it? I mean, um, yeah, it's pretty awful. Uh, I, I think it all comes down to, I, I believe in the management. I think they're good decision makers. The Devonta Adams pick, we got five starters out of that, but, but that basically messed up our team. Aaron Rodgers does not have in sync any receiver he trusts. Honestly, if he throws you a ball and your new guy and you drop it, he won't give it to you for like three games. And this is kind well, of you have to play. trust. You have to trust management as an owner. So that makes a lot of sense. I am an owner. Yeah, that's right. So I'm kind of <laughs> responsible for them. Yeah, one of the owners. You too for $400 could be an owner of the Green Bay Packers. But um, exactly. so it's, it's awful. It's all my teams are really awful. Wisconsin, Notre Dame, Oklahoma, by marriage, I'm an Oklahoma fan. And the Packers, they're all doing poorly this year. So I'm in a total desert football. And I haven't been in a football desert like since I was a child. So it's very weird, unfamiliar territory for me. My wife is sort I'm of sorry. to Josh Heupel, so we're kind of rooting for Tennessee these days. That's all I got. Oh, well, don't tell me that. Um, I know. That's well, why I said it. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously we wanted to have you on not to talk about football, but, but Congress. And I think we want to talk a little bit about potentially what's to come. But I did want to give you um, a chance to reflect a little bit on what happened this past week with uh, Speaker Pelosi's husband, Paul Pelosi. Um, obviously, awful situation. I know this is something personal to you, um, and, and I know you probably have a, a unique perspective on it. So I, I just know if you, if you had any reflections on, on what took place. Absolutely horrible. Um, not surprising. We've all gotten these kinds of threats. I got a ton of these kinds of threats. And um, the fact that, it, that it, the guy got in the house is kind of mystifying to me, and it's just awful. I feel so bad for Paul. We, don't, we know and like Paul um, and Nancy and their whole family can't imagine what you know what what how this makes them feel how violated they are um our kids each of my kids i've got two in college they all called and wanted to talk about it they wanted to discuss this because it really kind of hit close to home um a lot of a lot of crazy people out there and um and now they're you know taking action and uh it's not a lot not a there's a thin line between these threats you get and then people actually taking action and I think there's more of that. And it's just amazing how much this is on the rise. It's really, really a dark chapter in American politics. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for that perspective. Uh, changing gears just a little bit, you know, as Brendan said, we're looking ahead at the 2023 Congress. And we know that, you know, it's a probable Republican House majority. Um, and while, you know, some of the margins are going to be unclear, one thing that we know is that a lot of the members that are going to be coming in, um, are going to have never served in the majority. So I'm curious, uh, just kind of the changes that you've seen over your time in Congress, you know, what you think it means to have so many new members coming in who've never served in the majority. 
Um, you know, you've only been out for four years, but is this conference look really different in your eyes? Just love to get your perspective. I think it will look different. Uh, I think it's just a different time. But, you know, I've been in the minority and the majority lost one. Uh, this isn't going to be that different dynamically than when we got the majority in 2010. A lot of us went out and recruited um, newer people who hadn't served in majorities before. Many people who hadn't even served in Congress before, you know, doctors and private sector people. And it brought us a lot of energy. Uh, the question is, can you channel this energy to good policymaking, good policy ends, to a coherent majority that offers the country, you know, a, a coherent choice? Or are we just going to be wrapped around the axle on culture wars? I think that's going to be kind of the question with this new majority. But, uh, you know, it, it's exciting, I think. I think we're 10 weeks ago, like in September and August, I was saying, oh, this could, this could be a single-digit majority. Now I think we're going to have a nice double-digit majority just based on trends. I used to say 15 to 25 seats. Now it looks like 20 to 30 seats. That's a pretty good cushion, um, but it's going to be a lot of new people. And, and the thing is you got to keep people busy. You got to give people lots to do to keep them busy um, going in the right direction um, because if you don't do that, uh, it, this majority can go any, any majority can go any which direction. So I think it's really important that they build a coherent um, thesis of what their majority is about, who does what, when, where, and how, and get everybody playing an important role toward, you know, a vision for what that majority looks like, the horizon we're shooting for. The biggest mistake all new majorities and divided, divided governments make is they, they, they come in with a lot of promise and they think they can make good on all of these promises, but in divided government, you can't. So they end up over-promising and under-delivering and getting really upset, upsetting their constituents, upsetting themselves. So I think it's really important that you set a baseline of expectations on what you can achieve in divided government, knowing that the real prize is 2025, is winning the White House and Congress and passing the law, the things you think are important for the country. And that's the objective, not 2024, 2025, I mean, not, not 2023 and 2024, excuse me. And that's going to be really hard to temper those expectations with new people who have never served before. Yeah. And, and I think, um, you know, if so, if Republicans do win, you know, control, as we've said, we, we think that they will, you know, how are they going to be interpreting um, what voters are saying? You know, you mentioned the mandate, you know, that they're going to have from voters. I mean, do you, do you see this as a mandate to push Republican policy or, you know, to serve as more of a check on Democrats? Uh, it's probably going to be more of a reactionary mandate, meaning we don't like Dem Democrats went too far left. We don't like their economic policies. They gave us overheated inflation and we want to stop this lurch to the left. So check on government, I think, is the basic message. Then the question is, do you take this opportunity to cultivate a better vision for the country with better policies that actually solve people's problems? And can you can you you know, can you stitch together a coherent agenda and communicate that agenda? Um, and then and then they're, they're going to pass a lot of messaging bills. Right. I mean, because they're not going to go into law. So you'll pass messaging bills that show here's how we would do things differently if given the ability to actually put these into law. And here's why it's better for for America. I think that's going to be the, the what the task that's before them that they have to achieve. Um, and to me, the eye and the prize is setting a stage for giving the country a really clear and coherent choice in 2024. Now, that's that leaps over an entire two year period. And the question is, what is this new majority going to do in that two year period? And that's really, you know, they 
have an agenda that they that they ran on. Uh, they, they they need to fill that agenda out, act on that agenda, but temper your expectations because a lot of that stuff's not going to make it into law. So you have to show what it looks like, why if it would make it into law is better, and I think that's really going to be their their chore. So a check on government, but also the opportunity to offer an alternative. But I think that's where we are. So building on that, I mean, my my theory has always been that you know new majorities always come in and think that it was a affirmation of everything they've always wanted to do and yeah, intend yeah. to overreach. I, I do think there's a bit of an awareness that these things aren't going to become law. And you've even heard people like Jim Jordan say, you know, these things aren't going to become law, which is a little different than how, um, how some of those guys used to talk. But obviously, they're going to direct a lot of their energies into oversight, which I think is a totally reasonable and fair thing to do. Um, do you think there's a risk, though, of potentially overreaching on, on that? And how do they prevent Gosh, themselves no, from, Brennan, from overreaching? Why would you ever say that? <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, yeah, but J so I liked it, the fact that JJ, who's going to have a gavel, will, will think about, OK, I, I actually have to execute this majority in this chairmanship and I have to set my expectations accordingly. Having that kind of responsibility and acknowledging that, I think is a good thing. And I'm, I'm glad I call Jim JJ. That's my nickname for him. Um, I think it's good that they set those expectations. It is important to do oversight. You know, the FBI did overreach on FISA and things like this, but temper it. Um, make sure that you're not just pulling on threads because of vindictiveness or, or more importantly, the last thing I think the American people want to see is a new majority uses a tool for Trump's vindictive campaign or a vendetta. That's not what a majority is for. A majority is for advancing the interests of the American people looking forward, not looking backward and settling some guy's scores. So that's going to be a bit of a challenge, I think. Having said all that, I, I assume they're going to do some oversight on, on Hunter Biden and his lap. That stuff sounds awful. They should do oversight on that stuff. I think that's Comer's committee, which is oversight. I think overseeing you know, the FBI and the Justice Department. They're going to have that. And I think that there is clearly need for oversight there. But I think it's important that the adults in the room sort of temper this by not just chasing conspiracy theories, going down rabbit holes or overreaching and, and, and just getting to truth and making sure that you hold an executive branch accountable. It's it's almost it's political. It's, it's political math that that parties of the executive branch, the, the executive branch's own party typically doesn't do, you know, really good oversight over them. A president's own party in control of Congress usually lacks a lot of oversight fortitude. So the one thing you do get in, in, in divided government is a reassertion of Article One powers where the legislative branch takes its oversight responsibility seriously. And I think that's going to happen. That needs to happen. But you've got to temper it with you know, some reason so that the objective here isn't, isn't politics or a vendetta, but truth and accountability with an eye toward effectuating good public policy to offer the country a choice in 2024. That's the way I look at it. You think Kevin's, Kevin McCarthy is going to be the next Speaker of the House, correct? Why do you, why do you think that Absolutely. is? I do. I do. I think the majority cushion is going to be nice uh, for him. And that anybody trying to get the speakership, if you have a, a thin cushion, it's much harder. I think he's going to have a decent cushion. It's going to be much easier. But either way it goes, nobody knows the inside game better than Kevin McCarthy. I know people are frustrated with Kevin based on just things he did or did not do um, for, for national political reasons or, or for policy and, and, and political, political reasons. He's playing the inside game. 
to win the vote for speaker. He knows exactly how to do that. He was better at that than me. And um, I wouldn't count him out ever because he really knows how members think, how they operate, and how to play a vote counting game. Of all the whips I ever worked for, he really understood this system. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. But still, even if uh, he, he knows the inside game uh, perhaps even better than you, um, do you have any sort of thoughts on, on what he should be thinking about going into becoming a new speaker? I know your new speakership was a bit of a shotgun start. Um, yeah, but any, I had like 10 day notice for that. Um, anything he should be thinking about going into this job? Yeah. Assuming yeah. he gets it? The biggest thing I think he needs to think about is restoring the system. Nancy consolidated so much power into the hands of the speakership. She denied the committees their autonomy. She basically took the teeth out of the rules committee, putting bills straight on the floor with no amendments, you know. So you've got to, he needs to build back the institution of Congress itself, the way the legislative branch is supposed to work, decentralize power from the, the iron grip that's been consolidated into the speaker's office. Look, I wanted to decentralize it more. I had far much more power than I should have as Speaker of the House. I made so many more decisions in these four corner omnibus bills than I really ever should have. So I really think the chore is to, to rebuild the institution by strengthening the committee system, rebuilding the budget process, which in divided government is going to be hard. Um, I tried to do it with a special bicameral committee that remember I had Womack run this. I really wanted to rebuild the budget process. We had 12 separate appropriation bills, not a big omnibus bill. Um, that didn't work because the Democrats didn't want to go along with it because Nancy and Chuck liked the power. I think that's basically the story there. I still think Kevin's got to go back at that. Um, but honestly, it's, it's rebuilding the institution, get members doing amendments, committees, writing bills, doing markups, you know, designing their own policies, doing their own oversight, bringing their bills to the floor and having what we would, what we often affectionately call the regular order. That to me is his biggest challenge. And, and that's, I think he's going to do that. And I think that's where I, I would really focus on if I were speaker. You know, we, we kind of talked about Jim Jordan and, you know, some of the differences that we'll be seeing in this majority with, with him having a gavel. Um, I know that's certainly different than in your time when we saw some, you know, different rabble rousers from different, you know, areas of the of the conference. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, if you're seeking to maintain a united conference, um, you know, what are some reflections that you have, um, you know, that you would just kind of pass on uh, to to the new majority coming in and, and how yeah. they should be looking at this. Think about, you've got to set a, a, an objective and a vision from the get-go. He's done this with, with, with their, you know, the policy vision they put out so far. You've got to set a vision and then you got to hold people accountable to executing that vision. You know that you're not going to make law because it's divided government, but you have to show the country a choice. And I think the best thing we did was we, we basically bear hugged everybody. You know, I over communicated on a daily basis with the rabble rousers so that there was really no daylight. And then we had constant communication. Every Wednesday I had lunch with Jim Jordan, Mark Meadows, the Tuesday group and everybody in between just to make sure that we had very good lines of communication so that you didn't see your conference splintering. Um, that's even going to be more challenging, I think, for Kevin. And so he's going to have to just but he knows this very, very well. So keep people on the same page, keep open lines of communication, but set goals and hold people to account to, to honoring their end of the goal, their end of the bargain to stay you know, in the majority. And I think one of the ways to do that is you've got you to be a little sloppy in that you have to let the system kind of work its will. 
You can bring bills to the floor that may fail. You'll let amendments in order that may not work. You got to let the, the churn of legislative process sort of work its will within the theory of your majority so that people can be creative, so that people can, you know, you know, exercise their franchise. And I think that's what Nancy, she really stiltified the issues. COVID was part of it, but, you know, get rid of the magnetometers, let people go back to kind of a normal, regular order um, and kind of calm that down. I think Kevin knows how to do that. I think by opening the system up, making it more transparent, giving more autonomy and power to the committees, and then constant communication with the various factions of your, of your majority. You're basically running a coalition government, um, like a parliamentary system, but it's just in one part of our government, the House of Representatives. And you have to kind of run it like that, stitch these coalitions together and, and get them to understand that they, they survive by making concessions um, to some of the other coalitions. You can't always have it your way every single day. And you have to understand that and you have to help people realize that. And that requires constant communications. Well, I'm going to get you out of here, but there's one more thing. I, hopefully um, you have some, some thoughts on one of my frustrations. And I think you share this frustration um, is that our party has become a bit of a, a post policy party. As you mentioned, it's much more about culture wars um, and, and outrage. And I know you want to get back to having a conversation about policy. How do we do that? I know this is something that you've been been working on. How do we get back to having a conversation about party, about policy and being a party that cares about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I, I do worry about this. I think institutionally reviving the committees, like I described, can help do that. By giving them responsibilities to actually, you've got to come up with policies in your area. You've got to go do this. Reconnecting um, policymakers with think tanks. In my old days, there wasn't a week that didn't go by where I wasn't over at a think tank or they were in my office helping me with ideas. You've got to reconnect those. That doesn't work. So at AEI, where I am these days, we're coming out with a book in a few weeks to show um, with, with 18 scholars. Um, I've put together a book to show here's how you rebuild the social safety net. Here's how you re, uh, rework the, the social contract to prevent a debt crisis, to balance the budget, pay off the debt. Um, to preserve the reserve currency. Here's how you rework our monetary system um, for the future. Here's a new tax code wired for economic growth built on the successes we've already had. Um, so we're putting out a lot of that, um, that, that kind of content in, in late November to try and get our party thinking about big ideas again, rising to the challenges and trying to get that muscle memory of policymaking going again and getting policymakers interacting with, with thinkers in our party, in our, in our conservative movement. That to me is extremely important. And by re-empowering members and committees to go do that, I think that is keeping people you know, focused on the, on, the, on the right thing. I do worry about sugar high politics, which is culture war. You know, it's important to be on the right side of the culture war, but, but if, if all you do is go to Congress to try and become famous and, and scale the entertainment wing of your party, by, by curating your own brand, which necessarily comes at the expense of everybody else and your zero-sum way of thinking, that is going to disintegrate us. That is going to divide and conquer ourselves. So we've got to get past these cultural war politics. It's important to stand up to this woke narcissism, this woke fascism, I guess I would say. I agree with that. But if all you're thinking about is how to drive wedges and polarize for your own particular brand, you're just going to polarize America even more. So the question is, can we put sort of make the culture war, you know, more of a side thing and make a policy battle the thing and go and engage in a battle of ideas instead of the assassination and the character assassination that comes with culture war politics? 
I don't know if our, our party's up to that right now, but that to me is where we have to go. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Amen. Yeah, I think that's a big question. Um, well, Speaker Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, we're really grateful for the insight you shared and so are our listeners. All right, Annalise, Brennan, thanks. Congratulations on your new podcast. Well, thank you, Speaker Ryan, for joining us. We will be back next week, right after the election, with a firm sense of who will be in control. Thanks for listening. Control is a production of Seven Letter, a leading strategic communications firm in Washington, D.C. and Boston, with deep experience in bipartisan public affairs, public relations, crisis management, digital strategy, and corporate engagement. Special thanks to our producer, Benji Englander. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Please join us next week for another episode, and don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you for listening.